A federal career executive who helped rethink office space for government employees is stepping down. Nina Albert, commissioner of the Public Building Service at the General Services Administration, is leaving the agency in federal service on Friday. Albert appeared before several House and Senate committees this year, and there she faced bipartisan calls to make better use of federal office space and get rid of space agencies don't need. Here with a review, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. I guess it's fair to say, Jory, she had a really tough job in the COVID remote working and all of this mess period that we've just been through. And so let's hear more about Ms. Albert. She had a very important job that became more important at this point where we were really broadly figuring out what federal office space was Therefore, and what it meant to the federal workforce, and just how much of it we needed at a very pivotal time as employees were more comfortable with telework since the start of the COVID 19 pandemic, and we're still trying to figure that out. She, on top of all that, Albert was also trying to do the day to day stuff like the design and construction of new federal buildings, leasing buildings across the country and getting rid of these buildings that GSA no longer needed for its tenants across the federal government. And, you know, in addition to all of that, also getting federal buildings prepared for COVID-19 mitigation efforts. And if that wasn't enough, overseeing nearly $7 billion in new investments under both the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law and the Inflation Reduction Act. Some of the projects we've seen more recently come out of that is rehabilitating existing buildings, making them more energy efficient, and also revitalizing some ports of entry across the country. And who's going to be taking over for her? We have heard that Elliot Dooms, a GSA regional administrator, will be taking over as the next PBS commissioner. It's an appointed position, not a Senate-confirmed one, so he'll immediately be taking over when Albert steps down. All right. Imagine coming into a job to take over federal buildings on the very moment they all get evacuated because of a pandemic. That's a tough tough assignment, I guess, for Ms. Albert. Speaking of consolidating federal offices, How's that going? Is there any progress among agencies? I think you could say that we're definitely in the early stages of that. GSA did help support agencies looking to do that kind of work. They were testing out some co-working spaces across the country in all the major metro hubs, giving agencies and federal employees across those agencies an opportunity to all work in WeWork-style spaces. And they also try to encourage this you know, new exciting era of hybrid work through its workplace innovation lab, giving agency leaders an opportunity to test the furniture and technology that enables that. But again, early stages here. And to really underscore that point, Nina Albert just a couple of weeks ago spoke before the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee. She said that this is just, of course, an issue that's relevant now, the idea of consolidation, but this is something that has been challenging for a while over the past nearly decade, she said that there have been 120 missed opportunities to consolidate federal office space, and that this is, again, an ongoing challenge. The opportunity before us is to transform the federal real estate portfolio into a high-performing and more efficient portfolio than today's inventory. I like to say that we want better buildings, but fewer buildings. All right, so that's got to happen. And what does GSA need to make this happen, actually? Well, to make Albert's vision of better buildings but fewer buildings possible, what they've asked Congress for, in addition to its annual appropriations, is full access to the Federal Buildings Fund. This is the pot of money where agencies' rent payments ultimately get collected. And that's a multi-billion dollar pot of funds that GSA normally has access to 
uh, except for a little bit of things. Congress since 2011 has skimmed about a billion dollars off the top of that fund and have used those funds to pay for other agencies and other federal appropriations. And that's a not insignificant amount of money for GSA. Albert said that Congress siphoning these funds off has led to delays in investing in federal buildings and actually making them in a good enough condition to uh, consolidate or to get rid of. We have seen minor issues grow into more costly repairs and replacements. It's also delaying consolidation plans, forcing the government to carry space that is underutilized while we wait for funding to complete work allowing for tenant relocations. Yeah, that gets to an important point that might be overlooked here, I think, Jory, is that it costs money initially to consolidate space. You can't just move people into dirty old leftover space and move people around. There's moving expenses. There's renovation expenses. There might be lease buyouts that might save you money in the long run. But in the meantime, you got to get out from under the landlord. And so I think that might be misunderstood by Congress or just overlooked altogether. And when an agency wants to give up real estate, that's not so easy either, is it? No, because, again, we're at this very uncertain time where this fall and in the coming months, we will see more federal employees return to the office. This is a administration-wide focus. The Biden administration, through its Office of Management and Budget, is really strongly encouraging this because at the end of the day, what nobody wants is underutilized buildings and what to do about it. You can really go one of two ways. You can either put federal employees in those buildings, make them use it more, or sell off those buildings and say, all right, well, the future of work is more telework and remote work friendly. It's really one or the other or a little bit of both. And, you know, it's not so easy. And I think David Maroney, who is over at GAO, he's their acting director of physical infrastructure. He said that Agencies, much like GSA, have pretty limited budgets to reconfigure or consolidate office space. And in this uncertainty, they're not going to make big moves that they can't take back sooner rather than later. But he did say that this does add up to real costs. Every dollar an agency spends on extra space is a dollar they don't have to spend on other priorities. And for local economies, unneeded federal space could potentially be put to more productive uses. To be clear, figuring out how much office space agencies really need and shedding any they don't won't be easy, quick, or cost-free. Yeah, we've learned that over the decades. And, of course, there's federal buildings and there's federal buildings. Some of them are historic and monumental. Some of them are just pedestrian buildings the government happens to own, which nobody cares if they dispose of. But the least space, that's a big bugaboo because that's the most fungible space that you have because you can get out of it without a sale. And so... What's the conditions, what's the status of GSA's leased office space? You know, this is the one area where I think GSA has the best success story to tell because going forward, more than half of GSA's leases are set to expire in the coming years by 2027. And these usually happen in waves here where a lot of these leases come up at the same amount of time. And in recent years, we've seen GSA capitalize on talking to agencies when these leases are coming up, having those conversations of saying, look, how much office space do you really need? Is this office space still the best that you need to do your mission. And if it's not, let's have that conversation. And so over the past five years, GSA has saved about $6 billion by eliminating these unneeded lease spaces. And Albert said this is the one tremendous track record that GSA has, that they really want to keep this momentum going forward. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his retrospective story about Nina Albert and her work at GSA at federalnewsnetwork.com. 
Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across 
org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it? And building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to 
very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going, Um, because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because 
first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So, I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, It's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.